Dr. Trudy Sable has been teaching and leading courses and meditation retreats in the Tibetan Buddhist and Shambhala tradition since the 1970s. She has a long history of engaging cross-culturally with contemplative education and applied mindfulness. Trudy describes herself as a behind-the-scenes catalyzer who co-creates educational, environmental, and research programs with and within indigenous communities that are relevant and respectful of their needs. Much of Trudy's research has focused on developing cross-cultural dialogues between Western scientists and indigenous knowledge holders and elders. In today's episode of Mindful Voices, our host Michael Carroll talks with Trudy about sensory ethnography, about awareness of the Earth's natural energies, and about the importance of cultural respect, especially when trust has been a historical challenge. Thank you for tuning in to Mindful Voices, conversations you want to hear produced by Applied Mindfulness Training. Here's Michael Carroll. First off, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And uh, thank you for that reference to the YouTube on, on respect. That was very powerful. I'll refer to it in a moment, but I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So just a quick few remarks and we can jump into this. You, you know, as I as I mentioned to you earlier, Trudy, what these conversations are about with applied mindfulness is really exploring how many of us who are practitioners have, you know, pursued our way of life, whatever we do as truck drivers, in this case, a professor, a researcher of indigenous people, uh, you know, painters, actors, whatever. And really, how does our practice inform that? How did it inform that? Which we'll get into. Uh, that's about what applied mindfulness is about. But in this case, the, there's many reasons why I'm excited to chat with you. But one of them is, is you know, just recently we had a conversation with Melissa, Melissa Taworski, who also works with indigenous people here in the United States. And she works with the U.S. Forest Service and really helps build bridges between the indigenous people and the U.S. government. She also works very much on the Trail of Tears. It was, for me personally, I think for the audience, a very powerful discussion about that world. And as soon as I had it, I said, I have to call you. And 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 because as, that, as the audience is going to find out very soon, You've been working with indigenous peoples in Canada now for 33 years. And the north, if I recall, the northern people, I think that is a general no. Is that the wrong way to refer to them, the northern people? Um, it depends on where you are, but there is a Mi'kmaq people of Mi'kmaq, which is Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, into Quebec, and some into Maine, and the eastern Canadian. And the northern people I've worked with um, as well, who I love, are the Innu of Labrador. Right. Not Inuit, which is what people formerly and mistakenly called Eskimo. Um, people different, but so that's there in Labrador, northern. Quebec. You also and you also spent a lot of time literally up in the Arctic with with yeah. with, with is it the Sami Sami people? S A M I is that who they were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, for the audience to know, you know. Trudy is is a cultural leader. She's a professor. She has a PhD. She teaches at St. Mary's University. She is a researcher. has has written many grants, and and not only that, she's a, a Buddhist practitioner and a Buddhist teacher. So it's a very rich kind of culture here. That that person that Trudy has brought together for us. So I'm looking forward to exploring this. Um, you know that I think. For me, looking at that film that you sent, and I hope that we can put a link, we will put a link on our site about so people can see it. And the thing that struck me in our earlier conversation, Trudy, was this, that essentially the 33 years of your work has really been about learning and expressing a respect for the, the wisdom, the values the, the way of life of, of indigenous people. And I, you know, that, and I'm, there's just so much there. I mean, for me personally, I grew up uh, uh, with a, a Lenny Lenape, uh, part of the Algonquin nation. I think that kind of goes up into Canada a little bit. And I've known about them. And I've, you know, found their artifact and respected their world, but I've never really embodied it or, or touched it the way you have. Uh, in in the work that you've done. So 
maybe I can just throw you a big softball here and just ask you to help us in the audience understand, you know, what has it been like? What, what have you learned? You know, could you give us what it has taught you? You know, just a few things. What has it taught you over the 33 years of engaging indigenous cultures in the way you have in terms of listening, opening, touching it authentically? Uh, help us get a perspective. Well, in all truth, um, our teacher, Chagam Tungpa Rinpoche, was indigenous from Tibet. And a lot of the teachings that on earth, on the energy of the earth. Dwala principle, yeah. Mm-hmm are very, very much why I connected up here. Although I had spent some time with a close Yaki friend in the desert of Arizona when I was 15, that was transformative in a way into just understanding a whole different way of being in the world. Um, and, uh, but for me, that whole, the whole impetus to go um, meet First Nations peoples here, Mi'kma'ki, Mi'kmaq here in, mm-hmm. in Nova Scotia, uh, was to connect with the earth, the energy of the earth, and feeling that the people I could most, who most held that or understood that or reflected it in their songs and legends and language and dances were the Mi'kmaq for thousands of years here on this land, 13,000. And, um, and it so, was- Did also, you say 13,000 years they've been- Yeah, on- roughly, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, well, and the same with the Inu. I mean, at least eight thousand years of you know you can walk on the land up north, and and literally I've done this with Stephen um, Loring from the Smithsonian, who's worked up there for years. Amazing archaeologist with the Inu, and you literally pick up these artifacts, you know, um, literally on the ground. People still visit these these lands, you know. Um, so for me, I just started off going without an agenda. That was the first thing. And I didn't think about it. It was really to honor and respect that and and try and connect. Right. So it was about offerings. It was about dancing in the powwows. It was about <laughs> tea table, bingo halls, you name it. Right. You know, just getting to know people. And um, but that just kept evolving into um being asked then by Parks Canada, for instance, would you go and see how we could represent Indigenous peoples of Atlantic Canada more in our park systems, you know, mm-hmm. and that led to one of the first studies I did on traditional use of land and starting to see a whole different worldview of how people think about land boundaries and, you know, where a park is a boundaried space, but, you know, people didn't think that way. The language, you know, very fluid way of thinking and relation in relationship to others, very powerful. Your motivation, you know, is clear from what you said there in terms of really wanting to make an immediate contact with the earth and the people there, just direct. Yet I've also listened to you in, the, in some of the very first things that you learned in, in so doing were certain boundaries, certain, you know, op, not obstacles, but boundaries in, in how to authentically engage Indigenous peoples. Could you say a little more about what you've learned and, and how you worked with those, those boundaries or obstacles? It's um, it can be very painful sometimes because, um, you know, people are one elder was just so open and generous and from the land, really incredibly powerful person. And just being there, listening, um, being willing to be there listening. <laughs> um, but the other side is there are a lot of politics as well. Um, Mi'kmaq and Inu are, you know, people who have lost their lands, colonization, residential school. So there can be a political side too yeah. when it comes to politics. It's different because mm-hmm. then you're an institution. You're part of an institution relating to another institution. Whether I'm representing St. Mary's University or I'm representing Parks Canada or Environment Canada, you right. know, um, my color of my skin, you know, simply just being who I am. Whatever I feel, that's who right. I am. You know, and so that can bring up anger or can bring up people want to connect for whatever reason, a good project, um, trusting that, you know, learning over time, taking time just to trust, to create, um, you know, agreements, memorandums of understanding that people, you know, around everything from publishing, what are you doing with this information? Why is it helping our community? How is it going to help our community? How is it going to help our youth? 
who have dropped, you know, dropped out of school because this education system just doesn't work and doesn't acknowledge their histories. Plus, I, you know, in that video that you encouraged, in that video, it's a great movie, frankly, yeah. that you encouraged me to look at, the, the betrayal that they have experienced over centuries. I mean, it's just amazing, the betrayal, where in come the church, or in comes education, or in comes schooling, and there's a big promise. We're here to help. But in fact, no, they're there to indoctrinate their children. They're there to I, take their land. They're, so the, the, the lack of trust has almost been ingrained into the fabric of their culture. I mean, how did you, you know, knowing you, Trudy, I can see why you would gain their trust because you're a gentle and decent human being. But I mean, still, how, how, help us gain a little window into how you were able to, to, to gain their trust in that kind of environment. That's a good question. I often, I, I, you can't say you ever gain everyone's trust right. to one day, you know, it's person by person and it's also community and over time relationship, you know, building, um, you know, that you become trusted if over time you continue to keep building and giving back, um, what you're doing that it is genuinely for the community. It's um, a lot of cynicism around researchers running away with the information. Right. But, it's still going on. It's rampant still. Subtle sometimes, you know, even when you said, I know you didn't mean it. I researched the, them, you know, that. Right, right. No, absolutely. Listen, I'm going to get to my own it. inherent racism in a moment because I, I felt it watching the film and I, I can't wait to, to sort of display it here and get your feedback on it. But go ahead. My best advice from, a, you know, my co-author, Mingma um, linguist, Bernie Francis, when I went first went up in 89, he said, we just want to be seen as people. Now, that sounds so obvious, right? Right. But the little micro agendas are phenomenal. I want to be doing this. Oh, we should do this. Even today, you know, what is my agenda? What is my motivation? It yeah. still can run away with me. I'm so excited. Let's do this project, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll do this project, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it has to be run. It has people have to trust. Yeah. Yeah. But, trust it, the other way around, too. Can they do it? They're not this. They're not that. Yeah. I'll give you, you know, just like you said, you, you picked up on it when I said that. Uh, Oh, I researched them. Yeah. That'd be like researching my next door neighbor. I researched them. I mean, what is that? Yeah. Here's the other one. And I, I love noticing my own racism and, and really seeing it. Here's, here's one that happened when I was watching the film. I looked at the land that they live in, and it's so demanding. It's beautiful. But boy, is it demanding to live there. And immediately I was like, well, they really need some help to live up there. Boy, that's tough. I could see why they would. And I, I'm like, dude, look, at, you're already solving their life. And they don't need you to do right, exactly. You need them, I'll tell you. I've been up on that land oh, a lot. No, the no, land. no, I get it 100%. <laughs> but I'm what? It's in our, it's in my fabric. And I, I, I'm not ashamed of it. I, in fact, as a Buddhist, I'm. I'm, I'm really interested in noticing these patterns uh, of misunderstanding and and uh, bias, you know. So it's not like, but I notice them. It, it's 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 quite powerful, and I'm sure they're amplified from their point of view when they meet outsiders who come in with with all good intentions, you know. And and it sounds to me that what you are working with is patience with yourself. Gradually, yeah, making stupid mistakes, getting you know, I get slammed too. You know, I've had yeah. people throw dead birds on the back of my my back if I decide to be vegetarian. You know, right. you know, people, you know, like what is it, dude? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um all all issues, privacy. You know, people just very family oriented. Every everything you might hang on to is gone. You know. Right. But see, I have students literally who grow up right next to First Nations communities, literally, and that boundary. They say we never went on that in that community. Yeah, you never saw their history. I mean, this is you know you hear this, but when you realize it's true, yeah, you know, and um, you know how much erasing of somebody's culture. And now with this Truth and Reconciliation Commission coming out, there's much more coming out, like where people are now, oh, my God, look what we did, you know, trying to 
then it can go the other way, rushing, rushing. Okay, let's make up for all this yep. <laughs> these centuries of <laughs> of um, missing, and then it becomes too much. And yep. it's like, well, you know, we've been saying this all along. <laughs> you know, it's like this doop, <laughs> turn on a dime, right? But the notion, I think, the important thing is that that real gut desire to help is one of the most important things we have to hold and stop and say, what is it we're thinking we can do? Right. That is a really gut level thing that people think. And sometimes people just want to be able to do it themselves. Yeah, yeah. Let us ask you. It strikes me as a a form of idiot compassion, which you and I are familiar with, the, the idea that we think we're trying to help some someone but in fact we're only trying to make ourselves more comfortable yes you know and uh you know i sensed that when i looked at the beauty of the world in that film and the fierceness of it the power of it and i i i was like wow you know it's pretty tough up there you can help (laughs) maybe people want to live in fierce worlds that are noble and dignified like that and uh, uh, and so I hear you that you, we rush into help, and it's just further expression sometimes of the very thing that got us in the problem to begin with. Yeah, and not letting other people just you know we're smart people we can do this we did yeah. this thousands of years where were you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> try cutting, try cutting. When I I'm pretty strong and I built my own house and used to cut my own wood. And when I went up to Labrador the first time, I tried to cut a piece of wood, you know, from a, these willow trees. I, I just, it was like thunk because it's the wind makes it so curvy. The grain is so curvy, you know, just simple things like that. You die. You can right. literally die. There was one area where I'd love to hear more about your wisdom on this <laughs> is the, the notion of sensory ethnography. Okay. You know, when we talked about it earlier, I, I, I kind of intuited it. I Then I read up on it a little bit. And, and my sense of it, and please, you know, I'll just say it, then you guide me or help us understand, is that often we do ethnography or try to study culture or other ways of life through their language or tools or rituals, almost as an objective issue. Whereas here, this is about the sensory ethnography is about how someone embodies that culture, like almost preconceptual as a sense of presence, as an embodiment of the culture. And that struck me as so cool, like powerful <laughs> and smart. And I was curious. And it seems so relevant, obvious, central to what you've been talking about here. To help the audience understand this, this notion of sensory ethnography and what you've learned about it and how how it plays a role in in, in engaging these kinds of uh, this kind of work? Well, truthfully, I've been waiting for this kind of label to come along for a long time, you know, to teach from this. I've been I've been very involved in contemplative education practices. Um, David and I were the co-editors of the Journal of Contemplative Education through the um, Association of um, Contemplative Mind and Higher Education. Our teacher, we also did a lot, again, with Shambhala training, with, you know, just going out and, and connecting with our world through various art practices, through just walking, you know, in yeah. in the world and, and feeling, seeing, sensing. Um, but then this came out and I said, ah, now I can do this formally in the classroom. I can do this. And there are different ways of doing sensory ethnography, which I'm just learning myself just to see what the academic part of it is. But in in this case, what I'm doing is that what I wrote way back in 1996 in my master's thesis is that people came to know the world through their senses. Right. And, you know, and it's a really important thing that we are totally integrated, smelling, hearing, touching, tasting, all these things are not just survival, but it's the way we experience the world. And so in teaching sensory ethnography, there's two ways of thinking of it. And um, in my class, I had people from China, I had people from Africa, and I had Nova Scotians, and uh, it was you know, an Mi'kmaq person. And it was just getting them to do what they do, walk through the university, walk down and form, you know, your neighborhood and just notice 
what's happening, what you're sensing, just what you're sensing. And it's so surprising. And then in this case, giving it um, another form of expression, not written logical form, not coming from cognitive the, the um, sort of analytical. That we're not You're saying right, that's okay. bad. It's just that's only one way to shape this reality. What if you filmed it? What if you did poetry? What if you danced this reality? Whole different creative process that then engages, you know, engages others in a different way of understanding and coming to know, which is what people did all the time in cultural expressions through dance, through storytelling, you know, how do you create this, this way of relating and being part of this, this world around you that's, and survive, you know, it's not just surviving, but surviving beautifully. And um, so that's what I did with my, with the students, you know, they had to do all these exercises. There was not one written, there were, you know, journals and everything like that, but it was all, and it was amazing. It was amazing what happened. They really, See, the thing with the students, especially if they're going to quote unquote study or be in other cultures, is who are you? Who are you in this? What is your identity? What are your assumptions? What are you bringing into this situation? You're not separate. It's an intersubjective dialogue. You have to build that. You're two people and, you know, your co-creation. It's a yeah. co-creation, right? Often you don't even think it's, it's, you know, to understand other ways of thinking is really, you have to just go with it. You know, you just have to be ready to make, you know, just not understand a lot of the time, truthfully. My sense in this embodied approach, and again, this is just, you know, an interviewer, not someone who, who's skilled at it like you, is often in my life, I, I found it fascinating. Well, let's just take Tibetan Buddhism. I love reading the texts. I love, I've been there several times. I, I love the iconography. I wouldn't say love it, but I've enjoyed learning about it. But it's at a, it's at a, it's at a hand's distance, you know? It's, 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 I'm still a tourist. And my, my sense is with this sensory approach that you, you embody it in such a way that you have access not to information, but to wisdom. You know, like literally, you know, as I've hiked the woods around, I've hiked the woods around here many a time. Some of them are still old. And when I was a little kid, you, you couldn't find your way through the woods very well sometimes, but there were always deer paths. So understanding how to relate with deer paths and, and, and how deer paths lead you places, give you perspectives, show you places to hide. I remember feeling that when I was a kid. That's a lot different than knowing about a deer, you know, reading about a deer. You could actually feel the wisdom of, of people that understood how to relate with an animal like that. And it was a wisdom. You know, it wasn't just information. Um, but could you help us? So anyway, that's my experience of it. But could you help us? understand since this is an area of great interest how would you help for instance a, a person from africa understand the inu world is there an exercise or a or a or an approach or you know anything that you would that you've come up with that helps them enter into it from an embodiment preconceptual I think I think what I'm just saying is people realizing how how they relate to their own world is very very important, you know. And then around that, so I have a, a student from Zanzibar, and he really wants me to go to Zanzibar with him as well and do this kind of. He's working with local fisheries on um, eco ecosystems, coastal ecosystems, and but there's this discrepancy between the, the NGOs or the non-government, you know, and the local governments and really respecting right. the indigenous knowledge of the people, right? Who've done this for years, know the patterns, know the waves, know the winds, know the, read the landscape, feel the landscape, smell the landscape, right? And as soon as he started taking this class, he said, Trudy, you're right. You know, you just, I mean, I'm not right. It's just what people do. You, you know, I can walk down the beach. I know what people are doing just by the sense around me you know so you just have to you know um you just have to first put yourself in an environment yourself you know and you also have to really trust the people you're with and just be open because you know 
you're there if you're just going i just went up to the um, first nations reserve just to get to know people that was it i did not have an agenda except to learn the dances and to kind of make offerings you know get to understand that led to making friends just hanging around powwow grounds like i said bingo halls you know and I, that's what I, I, it's kind of like, there's no magic bullet. My friend, Roger, he's an Enigma archaeologist, very powerful guy. Um, we teach together and we've done a lot of projects together, um, did, um, documenting the Enigma place names and the elders talking about the places and their whole relationship to place and everything. And he said, you know, just see that invisible line there, you know, see it, just step over it. You know, he keeps like, this guy is just, you know, this notion of, just get to know people. It's like, it, there's no right. rocket science except that, but you also have to, like we talked about before, understand to me the tremendous trauma we've put each other through, you know, in every country, uh, you know, colonized. I went to Bhutan, which technically was not colonized, right? And I talked about what it's like to be colonized, you know, from a country that is quote unquote a developed country that has colonized other people, right? Very interesting to think about, you know, what what does it feel like um, to not be colonized? And in my class, Kwaku, one of my students in the class was from um, was from Ghana, right, the Ivory Coast area, I think. And he said, you know, my people, this what slavery did to my people is why they ended up, you know, becoming more selfish, more corrupt, the corrupt governments kind of thing that people see is because they had to break open their families, they had to, you know, learn to survive, right? And that's what they learned. So he wants to go back and, you know, really work with that, build a beautiful stadium for athletes, African athletes and things like that. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And he, you know, find his own humanness, like his own humanists. This is helpful to me because what you just accented was less about trying to figure out how to sort of open, not that that's a bad thing, to other cultures. It's really how to open to your own properly in a certain way. You know, like, you know, I've been reading about some of the industrialization of fishing along the African coast. It's just horrendous. I mean, just, <laughs> it's shocking. Well, wouldn't it be good to have some of those fisher people from the boats or companies just take a walk on the beach properly, you know, just to be in that environment with their senses and see what what it's like to, to be part of that world rather than just sort of a machine taking fish out of the water. That kind of sensory immediacy is, is what you're if I hear you correctly, what you're pointing to as, as the key invitation. Is that right? Yeah, but I mean, there's also the reality. For instance, I visited for the movie you saw when we went down to Muskrat Falls. And, you know, the decision that you knew had to make, because now having lost their lands and so forth and so on, you know, this is where the jobs are. You know, this is the tricky part. Once you get that ball rolling where you ship, shape shift, you know, the whole culture put a, the, settled and, you know, lands, you know, and, and, you know, church and education and all this stuff. And then even being, um, you know, just seeing, I see how these reserves have, because of the way funding from government comes down, you know, now they're becoming mini governments because if you want funding for education, you have to have this department. If you have, you know, fisheries, you need this department, you know, and everything gets fragmented again. It's, it's just so amazing. And again, um, people are much more resilient and they're smart, very, you know, really know how to take it and be resilient and make it work. But it also changes the ball game when, you know, you have what you have to pick and choose from, right? Yeah. And the, the, the one gentleman whose name I, I, I can't recall was being interviewed. I think he worked with the, 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 the dam. And he was describing his job there and that he had a daughter that he, you know, family had to take care of to make money. And his sadness, I could feel, I could just feel a, a kind of a sadness uh, of, of, the, of the, the difficulty of finding the right footing in that world between the love of his culture and the, the need to adapt to these dynamics uh, yeah, I saw that. It was very well well depicted there. It was just a soft 
moment of him describing his 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 world. Well, his father, Tony Panache was his name, and his father was Tony Panache Sr. was really respected in the community. And he's who I work with first. This is his son who you saw in the film, right? Right. And, you know, he tragically lost his life to his the senior. And he was constantly trying to take the kids into the land and very highly respected, knew it like, you know, just very, very respected, wonderful man. And he was killed very tragically in a car accident, you know. Well, uh, maybe that's where the some of that sadness was coming from that young man. My God, it's it's um yeah, no, I mean I've had the honor to be with people who lived in the in Mi'kmaq in the Mi'kmaq culture who lived pre-residential and pre-centralization was this incredible time in the mid-1900s where um the Indian agents decided that every all of the you know, Mi'kmaq people should be put on large reserves altogether. So you'd had families and social groups and smaller groups, you know, 150, 200, maybe 300, you know, on a piece of land in a certain area where, that they'd hunted and fished, you know. And of course, all these different regulations started coming in with the government um, coming in, you know, and saying, oh, you can only kill one moose a year. You can only, uh. you know, the layers of regulations. And that just was just, I was, you know, the houses weren't finished. People, you know, um, were thrown in in different social networks. And, you know, then, of course, there was um, residential schooling. And the whole thing was just such an awful time. People were literally moved into these. Some people right. resisted. and that's, But the elders before that were completely resistant between before any social they made baskets they made their own clothes they made axles they fished they hunted they you know grew, right. grew crops right. i mean they were totally self-sufficient not rich but self-sufficient you know right. and um right. and then then it was social services then it was you know check and then the alcohol i mean there was you know we've seen that you know all over the world and that the alcohol and the drug and how that then infects the, the the gentle fabric of their culture. Oh well, yeah, that's that's beautifully displayed in the in the and people are so honest about it. I mean, yeah, right, right. I mean, I'm sitting there, you know, I'm right next to the camera through that that whole film. I'm the one people are basically talking to, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, believe right. you're saying this is just, you know, it's. I mean, it's the honesty. I, mean, I don't find yeah. that kind of honesty in my own culture, even our own sangha, you could say, uh, maybe within certain groups, if there's a alcoholics group or a, maybe a gender issues or now a little bit diversity groups, you know, people looking at white privilege, but that's very recent, you know, but that level of honesty, I found it everywhere. I mean, it's, it's yeah. talking circles and, you know, people just like, and you're saying this on tape in front of a camera, you know, is yeah, it was very refreshing in that sense. Oh, it's just amazing! So open, so open, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the, it was not only honest and and vulnerable, but it was also simple. Yeah, you know, like like when I talk, it's never simple. <laughs> but when they talk, they said maybe I don't know twenty words, and it was like, oh, okay, you know. It's so simple, so direct, so authentic and vulnerable and good, you know, in a way, and not in a way, in a very fresh way. It was very refreshing. Well, when I first went up north with the Inu, the, now uh, with the Mi'kmaq, I was, you know, um, people, um, you know, more speak English and familiar with white folks like me, little, <laughs> I was talking about myself, a little piece of white, white meat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said you can't get much for me in the story. You know? um, but when I first went up, I I was like within three days. I hadn't been into this community. Within three days, I was on a cargo plane, hot, uh, flying up north to a lake to camp with this Inu family that said they'd take me because I was working with Environment Canada and the university. I was the quote unquote researcher to look at these open areas of water called Shkui sites that where the, all the early fish come, the, they open and the, draws all this, the fish and the, and the uh, ducks and come and land. It's a very rich marketplace, you could say, but, uh, but everybody spoke Inu. I mean, I was just there. Nobody knew where I was either. Nobody, absolutely nobody in the world knew what this happened so quickly. <laughs> and when you get left there by this, you know, floating planes, they drop you in the middle 
more than like and so it's just you know just just you know incredible <laughs> well it takes a lot of courage obviously no <laughs> well I, I wasn't thinking about it but the difference when I told you once this story when I was just sitting very quietly, it was hard to sleep because I was sleeping in a tent with a lot of other people and you no know, privacy. Um, but I went down to the shore one morning and I was just watching this caribou go through the you know water, swimming through the water, and the ducks kind of got you know aroused because of the caribou. And, and I went back to the camp and I was saying, oh, it was so beautiful. I saw this caribou. They go, you didn't tell us? Because they're hunters, right? This is what they're to hunt. Right. And I'm like, oh, God. Right. <laughs> My beautiful little caribou. You're right. meat. You're supposed to be meat. And you're supposed to be, you know, I was being smoked right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, that's just like looking at the, the land and go, boy, this is really uh, tough up here. They, you know, maybe you can get a tent for them or something. Same thing. You, that's that's our dinner. You didn't tell us our dinner was here? What, what happened? But then they have a whole worldview. I mean, like, it's, you know, I can't say right now because so much religion, it's a lot of these cultures have got, they're very mixed, mixed religion, mm -hmm. you know, you still be right. Catholic and the Mi'kmaq religion, but also, you know, very into traditional powwowing, you know, and uh, doing sweats and, you know, and, um, but, um, but, you know, at that time, it was still very, very much, you have animal masters are called caribou master, who, you know, allows, you know, the, the, the shaking tent through the shaking tent ceremony. I mean, this is very, very skim of the surface. I'm not, this isn't deep understanding I'm giving here, but, you know, communicating with these animal masters, asking for them to release how you treat the animal. You know, right. They found the part of show carcass that somebody had left and immediately burned it, you know putting the skull back in the water, you know, um, just things like that, you know, and, and it's like not just a simple act of I, we need that to eat. Understood. Understood. I don't know, you know, how much through time and being in the community, you know, but that's what's sad to me working with the youth, the inner youth that you saw. I mean, these are kids we, we were working with that weren't making it in school, sniffing gas in the community. They get up on the land and they're a whole different crew. They know how to live. They know how to survive. I mean, what? I'm, I mean, this is amazing, right? This is not easy. This is tundra. No, no. <laughs> I, I looked at that. I was like, oh, <laughs> my God. You have to be fierce. You have to be very fierce and tough and loving. I could, I, I sensed from the people in the film that they loved that land. Yeah, but more and more kids are on the Internet now. You know, you see just yes and yes, yes. And um but, you know, more and more, you know, the junk food and the, you know, not and yeah. it's not a fault of any. It's just what happens. Settlement. You of all the people I've met, I'm sure this is true. You're a very rare situation because you have been able to spend 33 years in that world up there. And sometimes in some of the most rugged areas in the Arctic. What, what? What do we need to, what, what, do, what do you want us to know? You know, I mean, I know that's a not well phrased, but what do we need to know? I remember when I was in Tibet and this monk came up to me as I was leaving and he said to me, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure. What? He goes, will you tell the world something for, for me and for us? I said, sure. What, what, what? He goes, tell them we just want to be kind. We just want to be kind. We want to be kind to the world, and we want to share that kindness. Will you tell people that? It was so sweet. I uh, broke my heart, and I've told people that story just because I feel obligated that he asked me to tell people that when I left. But for you, what what is it that we need to know, do you think, if they were whispering in your ear right now? Well, like I said, we just want to be seen as people is one thing. And, you know, just to... Uh work together you know respect respect that's the name of the film you know and sebastian right. said if you don't respect the animals how do you expect them to respect you you know that was to me one of the key messages in that film do we actually respect look at it as a two-way mirror you know i mean it's it's so right. uh it's 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 
despite all our beliefs and interdependence, you know, this whole relational relationality in the world that we are all related and, and to think that to everything we do, you know, is us, it is them, it's us. And uh, so that respect is, is so important. One, one beautiful woman, Mi'kmaq woman, she was, I'm archiving my um, recordings of interviews and they're sadly not professionally done, but I was there and I recorded them. So I'm archiving them and giving my, all my research away. I'm not, I'm not back to the community and let go of any intellectual, anything. It's just getting it back. And, and that's important too. You know, this is not yours. This intellectual property rights stuff is just like, what is this stuff? What is this intellectual property rights, especially in universities? Oh my God. You know, this is what you get paid for, right, Michael? You yeah, you had to publish, publish to survive. <laughs> now I've seen so many articles that say science discover how Inuit, you know, or Inu, yeah, you right. know, scientists are always when discovering how people lived long lives. <laughs> it's like, why is it? What are you talking about? You, we were all waiting. This is a joke with a lot of people. You're waiting for us to be discovered. Do you know I mean like? <laughs> Thank you for screwing up our and. Uh, but also, um, you know, one woman, this one woman whose grandmother, I just, the one I was telling you about, just an amazing woman. They talk, called her Dr. Granny, body as hell, but just a healer. You know, she once asked me, what is depression, Trudy? What is depression? I said, oh, God, Margaret, this is hard. One. And uh, but she listened to this recording. She said that was so amazing because I've been so angry as her granddaughter of what's happened to us. And she said she wasn't angry, you know. And she said she wasn't angry. This woman was the most resilient woman. She she'd been part of centralization. She says, "Oh, those goddamn people! They didn't." She always talked like this. They didn't. They they didn't give us any plumbing. I kept asking for plumbing, and she said, "Ah, to hell with them." She goes out and sells baskets, comes back, buys her own plumbing, gets you know. <laughs> this is what was promised to them, you know, plumbing houses, you know, and she just goes out and sells her baskets. I mean, that's the resilience. But what it was that to have that her granddaughter said it really helped her to let go of her own anger. And then she was grateful just that I listened to the story, yeah. I said, you know, and I thought, wow, really? You mean just listening and, you know, being willing to listen? Yeah. You know? And I don't, I don't think this is, I don't feel particularly wise. I feel like, oh, you know, that's, you know, oh, yeah, you know, that's a that's a bigger deal than I thought, you know, and I don't think that's a special skill or anything. It's just well, that's a good signal. I don't put myself on anything. I mean, I really often feel really stupid. I'm not joking. Like, boy, oh my god, I just you know, how did I miss that? How did I not understand that? How did I not quite get the, you know that message? You know, it's constant because you're you just it's you just don't know. Well, I think that's how I mean. For me personally, it's kind of how I personally have wandered into discovering things. And people who know me, like your husband particularly, being stupid is one of my best skills, you know, <laughs> kind of, I don't know, what is that? What is going That kind of fresh naivete, I think, on your part. You know what, Trumbarimbache, not afraid to be a fool. Right? Yeah, I know. We, we, we lead with our kind of naive perspective, you know? So I think there's something there, but that brings me to the segue about your willingness and ability to listen, right? Which is, well, you know, besides being a professor, besides being, you know, uh, uh, a cultural leader, besides 33 years of doing the kind of work you're doing, you're also a Buddhist teacher and practitioner and have been doing that for quite, many years and have accomplished, not accomplished, but done what you needed to do, which in our lineage is a lot of practice. So how did that help you do this work skillfully? I mean, I heard you just say listening. Well, you know, the meditation helps us drop our constant echo chamber of self-importance and makes us kind of naturally curious about our world, you know, and maybe that I would suspect kind of fueled your willingness to listen or able to listen. But what else? What, how else did these did this practice and the instructions and teachings we got? How, how did it help you do this work? 
I'm trying to think. It just helped me be um, recognized more and more who I was in a way you could say, you know, um, I always spend a lot of time on the land, for instance, um, as I said to me, um, taking these teachings, right? Drala, for instance, to me is extremely important, you know, honoring, respecting. Yeah, well, for the audience's sake, and, and Trudy, you might be able to do a better job but to find this. Drala is a principle in uh, Tibetan culture. Yeah, it's like the natural energy of the world. You know, it's just understanding the natural energies of the world and some more powerful than others, you know, and, um, you know, so um, you feel it when you walk through the land, you feel, you know, certain areas or certain spots have a certain energy around them, you could say. Mm -hmm. Now, I happen to have studied and seen in a lot of the reading, I did something called grandmother rocks and grandfather rocks. So here we go again about worldviews. And Rinpoche did the same thing. Our, our teacher did the same thing, taking all these assumptions about reality and about, you know, what's real, what's not real, right? And what's real, what's not real? Just taking that and turning it on, on its head, you know, and learning how to connect with your heart to what's happening right at that moment and feeling, again, back to this feeling and um, experiencing and respecting that power, the power of people, the power of animals, the power of rocks, the, power the, the whole thing. And, um, and what, you know, the most skilled, you know, shamans or yogis or whatever are the people that know how to work with that energy, right? You can look at yeah. anybody in any profession, teachers or psychiatrists or anybody in any profession, you know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to work with the energy, Right. But in this case, we're talking about well, what is that energy? Coming to know that energy, you know, how do you how do you understand it? And so much of it comes through our senses, right? So much of it that we forget and we get caught up in here, and we're not understanding who we are present here, present, being present with each other, right? Does that make sense, Michael? Oh, of course. I mean, to repeat it back is part of what I hear you saying is is look in order to do this kind of work and explore these this, these worlds authentically, one has to be available. One has to be present. One has to be open to those things and, and, and to see the intelligence of not just, well, not just the people, but of the whole thing, the environment. You know, what we typically see as animate or inanimate is, is questionable. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, you know, you know. A lot of things are seen. And if you look at physics, I hate to say it, but things are always in flux. And that's very much embedded <laughs> in the Mi'kmaq language and in many languages. It's about processes. It's, it's about things becoming. Right. And, you know, it's not about a fixed entity. It is so funny because European mind comes in and goes, oh, this is property. This, I can own this. This is mine. This is yours. Whereas it, this perspective is, there's nothing that solid here. There's a much more fluid conversation. And, and to be open to that, you know, clearly for me, I'll speak for myself, is the meditation definitely trains me to be open to that kind of fluidity and that kind of quality of dancing with the situation rather than than solidifying it, you know? Well, do you own your house? Uh, yeah, I own, I own my house. Do you, do you own your water? Do you own your electricity? Do you own your mortgage? Do you own the bank? Do you own? Yeah, I mean, I own my house only because you asked me that question. But I look at it and I go, no, do you really own it? Have... I mean, do you own the do you own the water right? There's 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 three hundred year old oak trees. I know, but that's what I'm saying. It's this myth of freedom and ownership. It's it's really weird yeah. when you start to break it down, right? You like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my wife and I were sitting out here thinking about this just about four months ago, and we were thinking about the the drala of the, the Lena Lenape. And that, you know, our town is called Wallingford. And, you know, I mean, it's not Wallingford. It, this is, we're on the hill underneath the 300-year oak tree in a, in, a, in a wildly beautiful world. And this is going to sound strange, but the, the very next day, and we had this experience of the non-dual vastness of the world that that a free people would wander through in here without property lines and all of that kind of stuff well the next morning we woke up 
to this cacophony of birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we came out, it was so loud, and there were hawks diving and and two types of hawks, uh, sharp shen and, and red tail. There were uh, uh, blue jays diving. There were crows all coordinating with the blue jays. And we're like, what's going on in the 300-year oak tree? And there was a great horned owl sitting in the thing looking down at us as all these birds were, well, obviously upset. He, but we were like, whoa, <laughs> this is, we were like bowed in acknowledgement that there was a conversation with our world that that it's just beyond words beyond words yeah no i understand i understand because that's what i was going through in parks canada people would travel all through the land and put up a wigwam here whatever the resource or the spiritual aspect of the land and then you you know with parks it was like in situ what happened in these boundaries that we can represent historically and it just gets bizarre it really gets bizarre you know yeah. Or, you know, I'm working on this uh, Mi'kmaq place names, Digital Atlas, like I said before, you know, and a lot of all the place names are more use areas or legends or, you know, it's not named after people. Oh, that's interesting. So you're working on a on a map that actually maps it out, but it's not locations. It's actually what the area does or the resource there or the you know, the feature of the landscape or perhaps, you know, a mythical, you know, or historical, you know, something sometimes funny or sometimes like um, ghetto esky, you know, it sounds like moose urine where this fall, you know, fall comes over. So there's a, there's a lot of humor, too. That's another thing. Right. Yeah. And then we're, you know, like I said, we are interviewing elders who lived in those areas and connecting it to the digital atlas. So you hear the sound and then you... um hear some of the elders speaking about areas of the land. That must be fun to do. Do you have like interns and students working with you on that? You know, we started out, I was asked by the Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq, this organization, and um, this guy I'd worked with at Parks. And yeah, and then we hired, I had, we had, um, with money we raised, um, hired Mi'kmaq young interns and we had such a good I still to, I, I still have a beautiful um, I don't have her she's hired on through the project um, but I work closely with her beautiful artist masters of arts who's doing a lot of the video editing and uh, re you know digitizing and making branding them and everything and doing we've been doing more interviews together and um, we're still doing it I mean this started in 2008 when we did the feasibility study and then 2010 wow. But, you know, you, ha- you learn, you add, you add, and then there are elders that have died, and many of the older, older elders that I've known or have died or are dying. And, um, yeah, so it's, and, you know, then you hear the language spoken, and we travel, I watched canoes, too, so we could travel the riverways with the grant money, and, yeah, travel, and so Roger, this guy, this archaeologist I mentioned, he he knows all the riverways, and, you know, so we'd all get canoe. I met a I met an I, I met a, a anthropologist out in Utah, who was writing on a on a rock, you know, what are they petro, you know, what are they called petroglyphs, you know, that yeah, it's beautiful. I won't get into all the details, but nonetheless, he he was trying to get some of the local elders to explain that petroglyph to him, and they were very unforthcoming. And it took him many years to build trust enough that they would share with him the, the wisdom of that uh, petroglyph. And and I and I and I marveled at his patience and his love of what he was trying to do. But I also noticed the resistance he was constantly bumping into. The reason why I'm telling the story is this is such a beautiful way to invite elders and 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 people of that tribe to express their wisdom. With a, with a map and a legend, and ask them to you know, help, invite them, or encourage, or support, or do whatever necessary for them to to do that poem together of a of a of a of a, of a map and a legend of their world, and it really invites everyone to share their wisdom, which I it sure feels that way. Some of them are very funny stories because they also involve settlement and you know Indian agents coming and taking away things they had you know some of them are really painfully funny awful stories right right but getting people to speak their hearts and minds it's a that's a beautiful approach okay you know I could sit 
as I will, I'll probably call you next week and just keep talking, <laughs> even though we won't have a tape recorder on. But I need to. I, I always, I always end uh, these discussions with with a final question, Trudy, which I'd like to throw to you. You know, we have so many different types of men and women come come, and I'm so honored to have a conversation with them, actors, pharmaceutical folks, uh, people who run businesses, doctors. You know, uh, I, I'm trying to remember everybody, doctors, nurses, you know, pharmacists. But, and we ask, you know, you know, you've been a meditator as a pharmacist or a doctor, and uh, and you've helped us understand how it, it, it applied and helped you. And I'm going to ask you this, you know, you've been a meditator. You've, you, you let that wisdom unfold in what you've done. What advice do you have? For, for people, young people particularly, who are learning meditation nowadays, who are going out into the world doing a wide variety of things. Uh, what advice do you have? What pe three pieces of advice do you have for them in bringing their discipline, their mindfulness awareness meditation into everyday life? Understand your own culture. Okay, so you can say a little more about that if you could. <laughs> I only get to number one. <laughs> right. Well, because I think again, it's really important to understand who you are. And um, like what what I see is a lot of people are guilty that they're white now, for instance, or before maybe arrogant that they're white or whatever, or mm -hmm. thinking I'm a good missionary or I'm a good um Samaritan and I'm helping. And you know, I I, I think understanding your own values and you know, because they get challenged. Uh, you know, you really do. And, and you make assumptions. You make so many, we make so many assumptions right. about what's real. And boys, is, is, that's one of the hardest things. And that's, okay. that is what I try and do in my class is who are you going into this community? You know, and what's your motivation? That's what people always ask. Why are you here? And they'll say, who's your family? Who you, you know, the family is a big thing, you know. You know, okay. how many children do you have? <laughs> well, it's like not, not only understand who you are, it's understand where you come from as well, is what I hear you saying there with your family. It's really um like you know, why are you here? You know, I mean it's like people this never used if, if you think about it, people didn't used to have to explain themselves. It's only when somebody enters and asks or wants something, right. you know, like okay, you know, then you have to be conscious of what you're doing, you know. Um, you know, one one elder said to me when I, I went it was terrible snowstorm went way up northern New Brunswick, <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, you know, see that cake pan sticking out? You know, it, you know, you probably anthropologists would probably go away and make some really significant thing out of that. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, oh, they all cook their cakes this way, or all do use this pan this way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That we embellish it just right. like simple things, right. just such simple ways of being practical." Very practical. Right. So that's what I'm saying. I'd say, you know, this is uh, just be ready to be, you know, your rug pulled out left and right on your own assumptions and also respect people. You know, you don't know um, more. I mean, you really, uh, the humility part is, I mean, I have not achieved this. I mean it. And the humility part, you know, just um, there's so much wisdom people have naturally. This is basic goodness teachings, you know, Michael. But this uh, just um, mind for the wisdom, mind for the goodness, find the way right. that you can bring out goodness, that 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 wisdom, that gentleness, you know, because people have been really hurt. I mean, there's no reason in the world. So many people. I'm amazed that anyone trusts me after knowing this history, you know, knowing this history. And it's phenomenal. Right. phenomenal. It gets worse. I mean, I've fought in Africa. I've been in Siberia, Russia, you know, I've been, you know, um, in Nepal and in India. In, and it's just this, I've when I taught in the Gambia, I realized the same colonial forces, the French, the English, you know, the same thing there, yeah. say, the same wars in the same continent, you know, different continents, same time, right? So Senegal yeah. is French. Gambia is English, you know, Quebec's French, <laughs> Labrador is English, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what, you know, what, <laughs> it's, like, it's the same history of wars, it's phenomenal to go over there and teach mm. and realize that commonality, the rice from Gambia became the rice in Charleston, you know, wow. you know, those were the slaves, the slaves from there came up here, 
as free loyalists and the, the continuity of, of shared humanity. I, and then to, you know, this project I'm working on now for people not to see books about them in the, literally in the libraries, the history books, these are not just, you know, critical race theories and all that. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> no, believe me, I'm laughing. I'm only laughing because there's certain types of Americans who will come up with any excuse. What, what, what Americans are, one of the, we're, we're good at many things. One of the things is, can we get past this? Can we get past this? Can we get past this? That, you know, so there's a whole culture here of like, let's have amnesia. So I, I get that. But let me get back to these three points. Okay, where were we? How many did? The, 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 I'll remember them. It's my job. <laughs> You've given us two already. The first is, Understand who you are when you come into a situation. Have self-awareness. Understand your blind spots. Understand where you came from. Be self-aware. That's number one. The second one is respect people and be humble. And in that approach, you can then actually nourish the wisdom and goodness and kindness and gentleness of others. That would be your second piece. Now, what What's your final piece of advice? I said also know what your motivation is. Don't forget, that's an important one. I was going to, that's stuck right in there. I want a third one out of you, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> you want to bypass that one, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. The motivation, honestly, not to be silly, is the idea of, of respecting and being humble. I felt that that was a window into know yourself, know what you're bringing into this. But But go on, go on. No, I mean, I mean, people often want to want to know, you know, I mean, what are you asking of them? You know, they, they do, you know, what do you have for us? Sure. I mean, like, we have something to offer, <laughs> really? Right. And uh, so, um, yeah, no, I think that's pretty much what I have to say and have a, an incredible sense of humor because you can get, you know, it can be very painful. Mm -hmm. It really can. I mean, I've had people just not talk to me because I'm white, mm -hmm. you know, I can sit in a corner and literally literally you know so you have to have a lot of patience right. too and just be willing to commit to a relationship that's the other thing is a lot of in research by the way i'm only a part-time professor i'm not a full I, my my work has always been in research and um but anyway um but you know you 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 the people are tired of people coming in and going out coming in and the grant system also is short term you know it's two years maybe one year two years three years money runs out but this is a you know long-term commitment with communities you know, it's just like this, mm -hmm. the whole system, you know, is, is very difficult to make, you know, long-term commitments if you're just constantly scrambling to find money and right. using that right. money is so you can do a piece of research for some project. And does that project, you know, once you're out of the community, where, where does it, what happens, you know, what happens to the projects you start? Well, you, you seem to have been able to navigate that pretty well over 33 years, would you say? Well, I think, I mean, I'm ready to step out because, I, like I said, we had this whole truth and reconciliation process that really did have an impact. There was an earlier process, the Royal Commission on Indi Aboriginal People, and a lot of people are coming around and just suddenly waking up, oh, my God, look what you know we've done, and maybe overcompensating, but also a lot of really, and so now I feel like, okay, I'm archiving everything I've done. We've got the digital atlas. I wrote um, this book that has had an impact. Yeah, and people use that, the films we've made. I also did um, a lot of research on dances because dance, you know, so that's been helpful to some just remembering. I just, you know, just having this people, you know, language like the basketry language that I, you know, recorded, you know, just not just me, but it's one, you know, just helping fill in all the pieces. Sure, sure. Well, you know, on the one hand, you, you, I can, I understand why your work in one sense, you wouldn't call your legacy because it's their world that you're, you're, you're working with, but you've worked hard. You've worked very hard over the past 33 years. And I love people. I really do love people. They don't necessarily love me, but I do really. <laughs> when you get into politics, no, you know, not everybody. I love you. I love you. 
Thank you, Michael. I love you too. <laughs> no, really, you know, you you might just really want to connect as people, but you know, still, if you're working for an institution, or maybe if you just have white hair and you're big or whatever. <laughs> right. That's got me through a lot of stuff in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there can be an idiot assumptions, you know, people are making, and and also, what do you need from us? We're just trying to get ourselves together. You know, are you going to help? Yeah. Or are you going <laughs> to? Sure, sure. Well, listen, you know, we're coming to the end and I just wanted to reiterate your advice here. Understand who you are, understand your motivations, respect people, be humble and have a sense of humor because it's tough out there. <laughs> it can be. So, all right. Well, Trudy, thank you. Thank you on behalf of a lot of people, a lot of people, not only the audience, but a lot of men and women who you've been kind and gentle and disciplined and patient for to get their voices heard in a world that often won't listen. You've done you've done a great service for all of us. So on behalf of everyone, thank you. You're welcome. But I want to say it's also sometimes time to step back and not have your voice out there, have other people's voices. That's an important thing. You know, that's what I feel right now that it's time to step away. Okay. Well, we're going to let you step away as long as you take my call when I call. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Visit AppliedMindfulnessTraining.org to find free guided meditations, to explore our publications and insightful blog posts, and to learn about our customized trainings. We'd love you to tell us what you thought of the show and share any suggestions for future guests. Email us at mindfulvoices at appliedmindfulnesstraining.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at AppliedMindTR, on Instagram at AppliedMindfulnessTraining, and on Facebook at AppliedMindfulnessTraining. We hope you'll explore some of our previous Mindful Voices episodes and join us again soon.